Welcome to the December 15th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, research shows that in patients with myelodysplastic syndromes, or MDS, the frequency of pathogenic or likely pathogenic germline variants is relatively high across all age groups, not just younger patients. Based on these results, it may be time to expand genetic testing to all patients. Up next, we review primary results of a prospective multicenter study of children with acute leukemias, or MDS, who underwent T-cell receptor alpha-beta-positive and CD19-positive cell-depleted haploidentical HCT with reduced toxicity conditioning. Survival rates were on par with what has been seen with other cell sources, authors report, while GVHD and mortality outcomes were superior. Finally, an emerging unmet need related to CAR T-cell therapy. Patients who progress after receiving CAR T-cells have poor outcomes and no agreed-upon standard of care. We'll review findings from a large registry study demonstrating infrequent responses to post-CAR T-cell treatment and short survival times, highlighting a need for novel strategies. The first research article is entitled, Germline Predisposition Variants Occur in Myelodysplastic Syndrome Patients of All Ages. And the first author is Simone Furstein of the University of Chicago in Illinois. Germline variants that are pathogenic or likely pathogenic are increasingly recognized as drivers of hematopoietic malignancies. Multiple guidelines now recommend testing for germline susceptibility to myeloid malignancies in certain individuals, especially younger patients with myelodysplastic syndromes, meaning those who are diagnosed at or before the age of 40. In these younger patients, the frequency of pathogenic or likely pathogenic germline variants is 15 to 20%. However, it's not the case that these variants occur only in younger individuals. For example, patients who present with germline variants in the DDX41 gene have a median age of 65 to 69 years at onset. Unfortunately, there have been no studies looking comprehensively at the frequency of these pathogenic germline variants across all age groups. The present study by Furstein and co-authors attempts to bridge this knowledge gap. It was performed on a large cohort of 404 patients of all ages who received allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation from related donors. This cohort from the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant included 364 MDS patients, 39 patients with chronic myelomonocytic leukemia, and one with juvenile myelomonocytic leukemia, all of whom underwent a first related transplant between 2008 and 2016. The median age of patients was 59 years, 61% were male, and 88% were white. Overall, Furstein and co-investigators identified pathogenic or likely pathogenic germline variants in 7%, or 28 out of 404 patients. Predisposing conditions, such as aplastic leukemia, were significantly more common in patients with pathogenic or likely pathogenic germline variants, at 11%, versus just 4% for patients without such variants. In addition, high-grade MDS occurred in 43% of patients with pathogenic or likely pathogenic germline variants, versus only 25% of patients without them. Perhaps even more importantly, these variants were found in patients of all ages, not just in younger patients. In fact, pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants were detected in at least 6% of patients in every decile of age. 
The yield was highest in the 11 to 20-year-old group at 33%. However, the yield was still fairly substantial at 8% in the 21 to 30, 31 to 40, and 71 to 80 age groups, 7% in the 51 to 60 group, and 6% for those in the 41 to 50 and 61 to 70 groups. According to investigators, this establishes for the first time that germline predisposition to MDS is frequent across all patient age groups. Interestingly, the germline variants tended to be different in various age groups. Children tended to harbor variants in SAMD9, SAMD9L, and GATA2. Patients between 18 and 40 tended to have disease-causing variants in genes associated with telomere biology disorders, or DNA repair. Patients between 40 and 70 were often identified with germline variants in genes associated with cancer predisposition, such as BARD1, BLM, BRCA2, BRIP1, CHECK2, MRE11, MSH6, NBN, PALB2, PMS2, and TERT. Finally, most elderly patients had germline variants in the DDX41 gene. The authors further suggest that the true frequency of pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants is likely even higher than the 7% reported here. One reason is that testing was performed only on peripheral blood samples, rather than true germline tissues such as cultured skin fibroblasts. Blood may easily undergo somatic reversion, meaning that some variants may have gone undetected. What could these new findings mean for germline genetic testing in clinical practice? For hereditary breast, ovarian, and pancreatic cancers, germline screening is recommended when the pretest probability is at least 5%. That's according to clinical practice guidelines from the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Furstein and colleagues have confirmed a germline frequency of 7%, and the estimate is probably more on the order of 11 or 12% if presumed pathogenic variants and suspicious variants were included. Based on that, Furstein and co-authors say they have surpassed the minimal threshold. They propose that germline genetic testing should be standard practice for all MDS patients undergoing transplantation, regardless of age, and regardless of other features that may trigger testing, such as positive family history. Furstein and co-authors conclude by saying, We hope that there is rapid uptake in the hematology community of our recommendation for universal germline testing for all MDS patients undergoing hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. So, is it time to expand testing? In a commentary on this study, Rashmi Kanagal Shamana of the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston said that these findings are extremely significant since detection of germline predisposition variants influences patient management to a great extent. This includes consideration of unrelated or pre-screened donors for transplantation, genetic counseling, and long-term surveillance for prevention and early detection of cancer. In the commentary, Conigal Shimano goes on to say that the frequency of pathogenic or likely pathogenic germline variants is relatively high across all age groups in the present study. Accordingly, she says a relatively low threshold for germline testing is warranted in MDS patients. Regardless of young age or other characteristics that drive testing today, such as hypocellular marrow or extrahematological stigmata, Alternatively, the inclusion of genes with germline mutations in next-generation sequencing panels could help pinpoint patients with a high pretest probability. In further studies, she concludes, the identification of underlying germline predisposition variants in MDS will be essential in the validation of diagnostic criteria, prognostic modeling, donor selection, and new therapeutic approaches.
The next research article is titled Cur-Favorable TCR-Alpha-Beta-CD19 Depleted Haploidentical HCT in Children with ALL, AML, or MDS. Primary Analysis of the PTCTC-ONC-1401 Trial. The first author is Michael A. Pulsifer of the Huntsman Cancer Institute in Salt Lake City, Utah. Allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplant, or HCT, remains an important salvage intervention for children with certain hematologic malignancies. In high-risk B and T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL, HCT in remission after first relapse is still a standard therapy. And despite the remarkable benefit of CAR T-cell therapy in relapsed refractory BALL, the majority of patients will eventually progress and require transplant. In acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, Outcomes in pediatric patients have improved modestly in recent years, but HCT is still a standard treatment for high-risk and relapsed disease. Unfortunately, it's often hard to find suitable donors for children who need an unrelated donor for an allogeneic HCT, especially for minority patients. Furthermore, COVID restrictions reduce donor acquisition, leading to increased use of peripheral blood stem cells, which demonstrate inferior outcomes in clinical studies. There have been considerable advances in haploidentical HCT in recent years. It would be a major boost to the pediatric HCT field if certain haploidentical HCT strategies proved to be better than, or at least equivalent to, unrelated matched donor approaches. One such strategy demonstrating positive results is the use of T-cell receptor alpha-beta-positive and CD19-positive cell-depleted haploidentical HCT. Previously, the use of the alpha-beta-haplo-HCT approach demonstrated favorable disease-free survival in children with non-malignant disorders. Then, in patients with acute leukemias, alpha-beta-haplo-HCT demonstrated low rates of relapse and transplant-related mortality, or TRM. Compared to unrelated donor HCT, the alpha-beta-haplo-HCT approach has been linked to comparable rates of TRM and disease recurrence, with improved outcomes related to graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD. Another emerging question in selecting haploidentical donors for pediatric patients is the potential role that CUR testing on recipient and donor cells might play. CUR molecules, or killer immunoglobulin-like receptors, are key regulators of natural killer cell activity. A number of studies have suggested that certain combinations of CUR molecules between donor and recipient may better maintain NK cell activity and reduce relapse after transplant. Most CURs are inhibitory, and previous publications have suggested that mismatching of CUR molecules between donor and recipient helps maintain donor NK cell killer function against leukemic cells, for example. The present paper by Pulsifer et al. describes a prospective multicenter study from the Pediatric Transplantation and Cellular Therapy Consortium, or PTCTC. The study included young patients with acute lymphocytic leukemia, acute myeloid leukemia, or MDS, who were treated with alpha-beta-haplo-HCT. A total of 51 patients between the ages of 0.7 and 21 years were enrolled. All donors were selected to have a favorable CUR genotype, based on either ligand mismatch, high B content, or both. The primary objective of this Phase II trial was to assess disease-free survival, or DFS, in children with high-risk acute leukemias, or MDS, following the use of CUR-favorable haploidentical HCT using T-cell receptor AB-positive, CD3-positive, CD19-positive depleted grafts. The results showed that the DFS at one year was 78%. At two years, DFS was 75%, while overall survival, or OS, was 75% as well. 
One factor predictive of survival was the use of reduced toxicity conditioning as opposed to traditional myeloablative conditioning. Other favorable factors included ages of 10 years or younger and minimal residual disease of less than 0.01% prior to transplant, as measured by flow cytometry. But how do the outcomes compare to other HCT approaches? Although there was no prospective comparator group in this trial, the investigators conducted a multivariate analysis with a group of ALL and AML controls from the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research, or CIBMTR. These patients were transplanted using other donor cell sources, including HLA identical siblings, well or partially matched unrelated donors, or unrelated cord blood. The DFS and OS data were comparable between the alpha-beta-haplo-HCT cohort and the CIB-MTR cohort. Moreover, GVHD and TRM outcomes were superior with the alpha-beta-haplo-HCT strategy. In multivariate analysis, the alpha-beta-haplo-HCT was associated with significantly lower risk of grade 2-4 and grade 3-4 acute GVHD, chronic GVHD, and TRM when compared to the other donor approaches. Taken together, authors say, these results show that haploidentical HCT using Kerr-favorable donor cells yields DFS and OS outcomes that are at least similar to what has been observed using other cell sources in the CIB-MTR cohort, including matched, related donors, as well as GVHD and TRM outcomes that were clearly superior. Moreover, the outstanding results were achieved even despite the fact that more than half of the patients were black or Hispanic, indicating that the approach is feasible for diverse patient populations. In a commentary on this study, Alice Bertena of the Stanford University School of Medicine in California said these findings further validate the role of alpha-beta-haplo-HET using Kerr-favorable donors in children with acute leukemias. In particular, the results show that it is possible to simultaneously reduce risk of graft rejection while simultaneously diminishing risk of TRM. Bertena said this prospective trial confirms low rates of GVHD and TRM reported in the previous studies. Moreover, she said, the results demonstrate for the first time that a reduced toxicity preparative regimen is superior in the setting of alpha-beta-haplo-HCT. Although more remains to be learned, Bertena said the present findings confirm that alpha-beta-haplo-HCT is a, quote, ideal platform, unquote, for cancer immunotherapy. She predicted that when it comes to cancer immunotherapy, the combination of alpha-beta-haplo-HCT with new cell therapies will dominate the next generation of pediatric clinical trials. The final research article this week is entitled Outcomes of Patients with Aggressive B-Cell Lymphoma After Failure of Anti-CD19 CAR T-Cell Therapy, a Descart-T Analysis. The first author is Roberta de Blasi of the University of Paris in France. The development of anti-CD19 CAR T-cell therapies is unquestionably a major advance in the treatment of patients with relapsed or refractory aggressive B-cell lymphomas. Unfortunately, many patients progress following treatment. In the pivotal clinical trials of Tisacel, Axacel, and Lysocel, some 50-60% to 60 of patients relapse within six months of their CAR T-cell infusion and those findings have been confirmed in the real-world setting, with rates of failure ranging from approximately 45% to 64% at that six-month time point. So what happens to these patients after CAR T-cell failure? Now we have data from the DESCAR-T registry. This is a French national registry of real-world data, including patients treated with Axacel or Tisacel, 
followed in some cases for up to 15 years after the CAR T-cell infusion. The present study, authored by de Blasi and colleagues and published in Blood, provides detailed outcomes of patients who progressed or relapsed after Axacel or Tisacel. It also provides some insights on prognostic markers and on the efficacy, or lack thereof, for post-CAR T-cell treatment options. Altogether, this analysis included 550 patients, of whom 350 received Axacel and 200 received Tisacel. With a median follow-up of 7.9 months, 312 patients had not progressed. That means 238 patients, or 43.3%, were considered progressive or relapsing. Let's drill down on some of the patient characteristics of those progressing and relapsing patients. About three-quarters of patients had diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. At the time of decision to pursue CAR T-cell therapy, about 57% presented with an age-adjusted international prognostic index of 2 to 3, while 19% had an ECOG performance status of 2 or higher. About 57% had received three or more lines of prior therapy. At the time of CAR T-cell infusion, PET scan revealed progressive disease in 66% and LDH was elevated in 39%. The median time to CAR T-cell failure was 2.7 months. However, there was considerable variation in when patients progressed or relapsed. Progression and relapse occurred very early, before day 30 in 23%, between days 31 and 90 in 43%, and at day 91 or beyond in 35%. Salvage treatments varied considerably. However, the most common therapy after CAR T-cell failure was lenalidomide, used in about 38% of patients. About 21% received a targeted therapy, 20% chemoimmunotherapy, 11% radiotherapy, and 7% bispecific antibodies. Response rates were rather low, at 14%, with only 7% complete responders. Response outcomes were disappointing across the board, with no statistically significant differences between treatments. It was a similar story with survival, which was unfortunately short. The median PFS from the time of CAR T-cell infusion was less than three months, while median OS was about five months. In multivariable analysis, there were no significant differences in PFS treatment between treatment types. OS was largely similar between groups as well, though interestingly, lenalidomide was associated with somewhat improved OS including a hazard ratio of 0.42 and a p-value of 0.01. Overall survival also correlated with how early the patients relapsed or progressed. For patients with early failure, within 30 days, median OS was 1.7 months, and only 19% were alive at 6 months, compared to 48% overall. A commentary was provided by Jeremy S. Abramson of Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. He said this study highlights a, quote, new unmet medical need in DLBCL, unquote, which is the management of patients who progress after CAR T-cell therapy. Despite the overall favorable outcomes with CAR T-cell therapy, 43% progressed in this cohort, and for these patients, there is no standard of care for further treatment. Although the number of responses to lenalidomide, targeted therapy, and other treatments was low, Abramson said the fact that anyone responded at all was a welcome signal. But that raises a major challenge, which is identifying the optimal therapy for an individual patient who experiences CAR T-cell failure. With no guideposts regarding type of therapy, patients who progress after CAR T-cells today must receive personalized treatment approaches that are informed by patient or disease-specific factors, such as presence of comorbidities, bone marrow function, or lines of prior therapy. 
What's needed now, according to Abramson, are studies looking at the underlying mechanisms of resistance to CAR T-cell therapy. Results of those studies could help optimize treatment choice in the post-CAR T-cell setting and ultimately reduce the incidence of treatment failure overall. Listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the Blood website at cme.bloodjournal.org. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.